Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. You can follow us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. We are the official podcast of Tennis Canada and members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Well, Mike, we have been through one week now of a life without tennis and really a life without professional sports. We know the ATP has suspended play for six weeks. The WTA has now suspended play until May 2nd. It began with cancellations of the Miami Open and Charleston. And now they have added Stuttgart, Istanbul and Prague to the list, all in the wake of this coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, and it's not just the suspension of professional tennis or professional sports uh, that's really affecting our day-to-day routines, but here in Canada and all over the world, governments, municipalities are enacting closures, warnings, encouraging people to self-isolate in order to curb the spread of this new reality that we're suddenly experiencing and and seems to be changing so quickly day to day. Yeah, it, it's rapid, rapid change uh, in our day to day lives. It's it's hard to put your phone down right now. Obviously, with the constant updates, we're we're getting updates from our prime minister uh, day by day in an evolving situation in terms of our border, what they're allowing for flights. Are we going to see a complete lockdown? We're seeing those types of problems uh, across the globe right now. So uh, I I understand it's a fearful time for many. Um, For me, I I can still go to work. Uh, I I don't know if some some people view that as a fearful thing. I don't at this time, and I'm fortunate that I, I still have a job I can go to. But uh, I know for you, someone who has kids, we were in the midst of March break and and now you're going to have your kids out of school for another couple of weeks at least, which has to be just another challenge. Yeah, forget challenges of what we're going to talk about on the podcast for the next few weeks or months. (laughs) My biggest challenge is how I'm going to keep my two four-year-olds and my six-year-old busy and, you know, without tearing each other apart over this uh, increased uh, break. But, you know, we're three days in and so far so good. We've been getting outside and going for hikes and, and, yeah, socially isolating but not isolating ourselves from activities and things that kids need, which is exercise and, and getting out of their house. It's, uh, it's interesting. Normally, we say we should try and put down our phones and, and get together with people more often and experience social interactions. And now it's the total opposite, which is, as you mentioned, we're actually spending more time on our phones just trying to keep up to date on what's happening. And we're pushing people uh, aside. I, I wonder even how many more of these podcasts you and I are going to be able to do here in studio before we potentially get uh, sort of uh, blocked out from the uh, the workspace that we share here. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of have the feeling like I had at my, my men's league pickup hockey last week, which was like, I think this is going to be the last time we get together to do this for a very long time. And then the next day, all the arenas and, and facilities, sporting facilities closed down like that. Um, I wonder if, uh, well, hopefully we're going to find a way to get creative and continue our podcast, but uh you just don't know what the next day is going to bring, which is unsettling, but we're uh, we're making the most of it. And we've got a great episode tonight with a couple of fantastic guests to share their thoughts, not just on the coronavirus and the suspension of play, but other uh, tennis issues at large. Yeah, very fortunate this week uh, that Canadian doubles player Gabby Dabrowski uh, will be joining us on the program. Of course, she's been a superstar in that field for, for a few years now and uh, it has been recognized as such. Uh, probably the, the top doubles player that Canada really has to offer and uh, also co-host of the tennis.com podcast. And of course, a member of the tennis channel podcast network as well. Nina Pantic, uh, who was also actually a former player as well, uh, will be joining us on the program to, to chat sort of about this evolving situation what they're doing over there with their podcast and uh, I guess what to expect going forward. 
Talking to uh, a current player like Gabby, also super interesting to get their take on how they're handling this break from the day-to-day grind. Yeah. Tennis players don't get mid-season breaks. Tennis players hardly get a break at all. In fact, this break may be longer than the uh, quote-unquote off-season break that they even get to enjoy over December, uh, oddly enough. I was able to speak with a few players today just to kind of gauge what their day-to-day has has changed and and become. And uh, some of the ones I talked to, well, uh, Canadian and uh, and here in Toronto, Sharon Fishman, who's up into the top 50 in the doubles world, uh, she kind of joked that these are, you know, good problems for her right now because she almost needed a break from how much tennis <laughs> she had been playing, having so much success with Katerina Bondarenko in back-to-back tournaments in Mexico. Uh, she says she hopes the weather gets warmer here in Toronto ASAP so she can get out there and practice outside sooner rather than later. And for the time being, she says that she's Rocky Balboaing it for her strength <laughs> and conditioning, which wow. I kind of liked. That sounds very hardcore, very right? impressive. I'm picturing her running up the stairs, you know, like in that scene when he goes Yes, up to... oh, and the music blaring. Absolutely, yep. and, and why not? Um, world uh, number 199, Alitsa Kostova from Bulgaria had an interesting take on how things are happening in her country. Uh, she said they can't really hit at all because nothing is open there. And nobody wants to risk going into facilities and risking getting a fine. So apparently one way that Bulgaria is uh, encouraging social isolation is to actually uh, levy a financial penalty if you're out in public places where you shouldn't be. I thought that was uh, an interesting take and, and obviously something that we don't have here in Canada, nor do I think we, we ever would. But it's just interesting to see what level some countries are taking to protect themselves and their citizens. Yeah, you would certainly see that as a major deterrent for for people going outside into places I guess they, they shouldn't be stepping inside of. Uh, I, I noticed on Instagram uh, just yesterday, Bianca Andreescu shared a video of herself, uh, I gather, at home watching her Herself. U.S. Open <laughs> finals match with Serena Williams because, of course, you know, we're replaying sports programming right now. We don't have live sports, so uh, our network, Sportsnet, TSN, have to get creative, so they're showing showing back some classic matches and uh, some some matches and events we just saw last year. If my three kids give me the opportunity to watch any previous matches, guaranteed that's going to be one of the first ones <laughs> that I go to. Uh, one of my favorite social media um, tweets from a, a current player was from Ivo Karlovic, who uh, joked that he's been socially distancing himself since the early 2000s. Which, <laughs> I saw uh, that one. He is a bit of an introvert, although his sense of humor comes across quite well on social media, and that was just typical Dr. Evo right there. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and one challenge, I think, probably for, for both tours, really, is we, we don't have equity and fairness in, in the sense that some players who are you know ranked outside the top 100, top 200, top 300, uh, with without tennis and and the life that affords uh from traveling turn to tournament to tournament they they don't have an income they can rely on it yeah and a life that barely affords for some of them to even go Absolutely. tournament to tournament when they're in competition so yeah, yeah you definitely feel for them and i think of uh, philip pelavo who we've talked to before on the podcast yep. who was tweeting out hey anybody in the what vancouver area needing some uh, tennis lessons mm-hmm. uh, you know hit me up and uh, there's an element to humor, but there's an element of, of seriousness to that as well for him and, and for others who are certainly struggling with how are they going to pay the rent and the bills and uh, and what are they going to do the longer this hiatus um, endures. Yes. Uh, well, well we, we hope it doesn't endure for too long, but uh, it is so challenging pr- to predict if it's going to be a number of weeks, a number of months, but we will uh, wait and see. 
We are now joined by Canadian doubles player and mixed doubles Grand Slam champion two times at the French Open and Australian Open, Gabriella Dabrowski. Gabby, thanks so much for joining us on the show this week. Yeah, no worries. Happy to happy to be on. Well, it, it seems like so long ago already, uh, and we've talked about this, uh, that, that Indian Wells cancellation, but uh, it, it was just only eight days ago. I, I was curious, where were you when you, I guess, first heard the trickling of that news being canceled, and what was your reaction at the time? Yeah, it's definitely been a crazy eight days. Uh, on Sunday... Um, previous Sunday when I found out I was just coming off court from practice and I was going to quickly shower and head to an event that I had that evening Um, but I received a call from one of my uh, player board reps and uh, she said that uh, I had to stay on site that we had an emergency meeting Um, so then pretty quickly I then found out um, that the tournament was was cancelled. You're a, a big uh, part of the uh, player council and someone who's always been very um, involved and, and opinionated on how things are going behind the scenes and with the direction the tour is taking. How, how directly have you been involved in any of the communications or decisions being made behind the scenes over the last uh, week or so? Yeah, I, I'd say player council has been extremely busy this year with uh, with the bushfires in Australia and uh things that happened within the qualifying and and also making sure everybody, you know, was all right and health, you know, was our top priority. And then, of course, this week um, we're certainly certainly uh, on call a lot and uh, we are in various email chains and uh, group chats trying to figure everything out. So I'd say we're all very involved. Does it feel like everyone's sort of on the same page? I mean, I guess it's kind of hard not to be when you're dealing with something of this magnitude. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think everybody's top priority is health and player health. So we, we always want to make sure that that's, that's, that's taken care of. I'm just curious. I, I know initially the WTA just canceled Miami and Charleston, but uh, now we, we got word as well uh, that they've canceled Stuttgart, Istanbul and, and Prague, adding those to the list. So we know we're not going to get any tennis on the WTA tour until at least uh, May 2nd. Uh, were, were those cancellations really just following along guidelines of the CDC, do you know? Or, or was this just an overall sense of how this outbreak is progressing, thinking we, we just can't play pro tennis right now? Uh, well, I mean, so many things happened last week, right? Um, initially, you know, when Indian Wells canceled, we still got word that Miami was going to go ahead. So, you know, that was the initial news that we'd received Sunday night and Monday morning. Um, but then obviously that changed fairly quickly. Uh, and the news of Charleston came after that and Houston for the men. So um, um, after that, we just uh, wanted to do our due diligence and talk to the tournaments and broadcasters and sponsors and all the people, you know, that that work behind the scenes at these events in Europe to, to get a full picture of everything that was going on. And then, um, yeah, we just basically followed a process. And uh, that's, yeah, so today we, we released a decision of um, that unfortunately those, those events, um, Stuttgart, is, is Stuttgart, Istanbul, and Prague are not going to be going forward at this time. 
Um, and then we are in discussions with the, the with Madrid and Rome, um, and I believe French Open as well to see where everybody's at for those tournaments. And I don't know what's going to happen with them yet. Without any live tennis, uh, tennis fans are certainly turning to social media to follow their favorite players and see what uh, everyone is doing during this break. Uh, how have you handled it so far? How are you spending your time and how much tennis practice are you even allowed to uh, get in right now with some of these restrictions that we're experiencing here in North America? Yeah, it's definitely a very strange time, but uh, to be honest, a break is nice. Maybe not this long of a break, but... Um, I think, you know, financially a lot of players will unfortunately be effective, uh, affected negatively, especially those lower ranked. Um, those at the top might not feel it quite as much, but I think that's that's one of the main worries that we have going forward and, and why we had, you know, phone meetings and meetings in person last week in Indian Wells to try to figure out um, if, you know, we can get some compensation to the players and how all that's going to work. So we were very busy last week. Um, also had a couple other commitments on site. Um, and I did a little bit of practice still at Indian Wells. And I just returned to Tampa on Saturday evening. And, um, I mean, yeah, it's it's going to be a challenge. Obviously, um, we don't want to spend too much time um in a gym that's, you know, maybe not been properly cleaned, but here at Saddlebrook, they're, they're doing a deep clean of the gym. So all is in order for now. And um, everywhere, as far as I know, on the resort, they're taking lots of precautions. So I, I feel really comfortable here, you know, um, with everything going on. And there's still lots of great players to hit with and good coaches to work with. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in, in a good place. And... Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm all right with how things are for me. Maybe other players are stuck or they had to return to Europe and it's still cold and they might not have a training base there. So um, they're probably struggling a little bit more than I am right now. Yeah, you mentioned those financial challenges for some players who aren't ranked uh, perhaps as high. I've seen some who've kind of joked on social media about offering tennis lessons in their free time and maybe some of them aren't joking actually. But uh, you offering any lessons in Tampa right now if uh, anyone's there and interested? No, I mean, I, I can't work in the U.S., so uh, so no, I, I unfortunately can't do that. But um, I I call myself an introvert at heart, so honestly, staying home and catching up on school and books and TV shows and just phoning friends um, and family, I'm okay with that. You know, for a little while, I might get a little stir-crazy, in um, in a couple of weeks, but for the time being, I'm honestly okay. There are a lot of things that you can do from home, even for your tennis. You know, we can work out at home as well. So it's just a matter of um, putting your own positive spin on the situation, I guess. And uh, we, we'd, of course, be remiss to not talk about uh, your tennis career and what we've been seeing on court. Uh, this season, uh, you have a new partnership in, in doubles playing alongside the 2017 French Open champ, uh, Alona Ostapenko. Just, just curious, how did that partnership uh, come to fruition? Yeah, I mean, well, we, we played a couple um, tournaments in the past. Uh, we won Doha a few years ago. We played at the Rogers Cup. We played in Stuttgart last year, so... She's not a, a totally foreign partner for me, and um, we had some good results. So um, just last year when I made the decision to, to look for a new partner, um, she was somebody that was on my radar, and I reached out to her just to kind of ask what her plans were for 
2020 because, you know, obviously she's a singles-focused player. So um, if we did partner up, I wanted to make sure that um, she was into the doubles, you know, fully. <clears throat> and she totally was, and she was really excited to team up, and as was I. So, yeah, I mean, we've only played two events this year. Um, I hope we can play more later in the year, but so far so good. I'd say we're we're learning every step of the way. Yeah, well, and, and it seems like you have nice chemistry, of course, making the finals there uh, in, in Qatar. How do you think uh, your your games sort of feed off one another on court? Yeah, obviously she's uh, she's got a great serve and an extremely strong baseline game. So if I'm doing the right things um, in do- as 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 a doubles player, then uh, then I think our strengths work together really well. You know, I can pick off volleys at the net, and she sets me up and. I think if I'm also having a good serving and a good returning day, then we're a really tough team to beat. So, um, yeah, and she just needs to make a couple volleys and and we're good. And I think we've proved that so far. Uh, Also, I think uh, communication-wise, we've done better. I think in Doha, we did better than we did in Australia. And I was actually really looking forward to play Indian Wells because I felt that after we lost the finals in Doha, you know, we had a good kind of heart-to-heart discussion about some things and how we felt we could have you know, things that we could have changed that maybe would have put the match, you know, in our favor. So, um, yeah, so I think we're just moving forward as a team, obviously on a hiatus right now from the sport, but uh, definitely looking forward to, to, to improve together when we can get back on the court. Chemistry in doubles has always fascinated me and, and how and why people change and, and try new partners, some who mix it up quite frequently and others who stay with their partners for quite some time. You and Julie Zhu obviously had quite a lot of success over your three or so years together. Were you a little bit apprehensive starting this year with someone new? And in fact, in your first tournament, you weren't even partnered with Ostapenko and yet you made it to the finals with uh, Daria Jurak. So just if you could talk about that, that switching up and, and how you felt as, as the new year began. Yeah, I mean, I honestly didn't have any expectations. I was just, I'm also playing um, on the do side, which I haven't done in a really long time because I normally play predominantly on the ad side. So I did some work in my preseason to try to get comfortable. But I think at the end of the day, you just need to play a lot of matches. And, and then over time, your your comfort, comfort level increases. And um, yeah, I mean, I've had a couple of great partners this year and um, had good results. So I was really pleased with, with our performances overall. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's hard to know if you've made the right choice with a partner, but uh, I think I have done so this year so far. And, and I'm lucky that, you know, they've said yes to team up with me. So. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, I guess, about the, the team that I'm kind of viewing as as the powerhouse in doubles right now in, in women's tennis, which is the team of uh, Stritskova and Seisu Wei, who seem so impressive and tough to beat. Obviously, you've been on the other side of the court facing a team like that. Uh, is that sort of a hurdle that you're almost thinking of before you begin a tournament? Because they just seem so strong. Uh, I don't really think of that before the tournament, no. I mean, I honestly, I take it one match at, at a time. I don't even look at the draw. When the draw comes out, I just see my first round or even just the schedule of the following day. Um, I, I don't look ahead um, because I just think that it's useless to do that because you, you need to beat everybody to win the tournament, and the only way to do that is to take it one match at a time. So uh, for me, I, I really don't look ahead 
Uh, but yeah, they're they're super tough. Like you said, they kind of have the be- they have the best of both worlds, right? So they're very strong singles players, but they don't just play what I would call singles doubles. You know, they both um, mix it up a lot. Sue has incredible touch. She uses the angle, the lob. Um, she she volleys well with her two hands. She has amazing timing. She kind of holds holds. Um, the ball to the last second, so it's really hard to read if she's going to go cross court or down the line. And then Barbara um, moves forward a lot, so you you kind of don't know what to expect from them. They're also really good at crossing at the net, and you're just always kind of on your back feet. Um, so you really have to play your best tennis to to beat them. And um, yeah, I mean they're they're a very strong team, and I hope I have the chance to play them again and do better than than I have this than I have you know in February when I played them. I like the term singles doubles um, for those who are listening who maybe aren't as familiar. You know, often you'll see players who focus more on one side or the other. Uh, is there sort of a, a different view of players who just dabble in the doubles as opposed to someone like yourself that makes that the the main focus of your uh, current uh, sort of playing schedule? Well, well, we all have different strengths, right? So my strengths are going to be a little bit um, more tailored towards doubles, whereas someone like my partner's strengths will be tailored a little bit to more towards singles. You know, she has a lot of firepower. You have a team like Mertens and Sabalenko, which hit, you know, very strong ground strokes, and they have really good serve and, and good returns. And, and over time, I think they've also improved a lot at the net, which is, you know, why they won Indian Wells, Miami, the U.S. Open last year. Um, and a team like Bambos Modenovic, kind of the same thing, just very, very strong from the baseline, and they've improved their net game, and that's why you know they're ranked so high. Um, so for somebody like me to get better, I need to um, improve my baseline game a little bit and then be able to use my double skills with coming forward and changing the pace, um, sometimes throwing in a serve and volley, using you know, maybe some some lobs and some angles and stuff like that to try to throw the opponents off because I might not have the same level of firepower of, like, just sheer power on my ground strokes that they do. And for me to try to match them and to try to beat them in that baseline rally, um, maybe I can do it, you know, on my best day, but that's not really, you know, that's not really the way that I would like to to play doubles. And I don't think that's the most interesting way to play doubles as well as a viewer. I think doubles is really fun because you can showcase, you know, all of your shots. And, um, yeah, so uh, so it just depends on, on who you are. <laughs> we should give credit to, to saying, I, I just want to point point this out I, I think firepower at the net can also exist and uh, I remember watching you just this past year at Rogers Cup uh, competing in in doubles and you were all over the net and it's something that the other team has to be thinking of at all times whether you're going to cross whether you're going to stay uh, so so obviously that's a, a crucial strategy and uh, this is I think probably why uh, you and uh, Ostapenko can make such a great partnership uh, just seeing her ability to hammer the ball from the back of the baseline and uh, teams having to worry about you crossing at any time at the net, I think uh, is, is a great combination. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. 
Um, since, you know, we, we don't have any upcoming tournaments and we covered what, what is obviously canceled and we know the tour is suspended until May 2nd, we wanted to get, I think, some perspective for our listeners on, on your rise in tennis. Uh, when did you first pick up a tennis racket and, and what age did you start playing? Yeah, I, um, I first picked up a racket when I was seven. Um, my father's best friend uh, from Paris, uh, she's Polish and she had a son, but they were living in France and she came over for the summer with her son to kind of babysit me because both of my parents were working. And uh, one day we just kind of, I guess we got some rackets uh, and we went to the park, which was, you know, just down the road from my house. And we started, I guess, attempting to hit the ball back and forth to each other. And, um, yeah, and and it was suggested that I should, you know, take lessons. And, um, uh, you know, my parents didn't even realize that I had been sort of playing tennis at the park with my friend uh, for maybe a week or two uh, after I'd started. And uh, anyway, so I ended up taking lessons that fall in um, in Ottawa at the Ottawa Athletic Club, uh, and Tony Milo, he was pretty much my first ever tennis coach. We worked together for several years, and yeah, so he helped to develop my game, and my dad became um, involved as well throughout throughout the years of probably like ages nine till well till now, I guess, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it uh it was it was kind of a different start because nobody in my family had played and I don't have any siblings, so it's not like my parents played and then I joined in or I had a sibling that was playing and that you know I was dragged to the tennis courts and just naturally it came. So it was a little bit of a different story. Um which I'm kind of grateful for because you know I I pushed myself a lot even though you know no one around me really you know understood tennis or anything like that until a few years later. So, yeah. Those are my beginnings. It's funny. I'm thinking of my kids right now who are four and six, and my wife and I are always struggling with how much we put them into these sports, you know, whether it's hockey, basketball, a little bit of tennis, of course, too. Um, how, how did you feel, you know, when you were, I guess, eight, nine, so a little bit older than mine are, but how did you feel when things sort of took a step up in terms of obviously things were clicking? You must have been having early success. Um, did, did it feel at any point in time like it was too much, or were you uh, enjoying it from the get-go? Uh, to be completely honest, I probably mostly enjoyed being good at something. Uh, you know, I had decent success at the local level and then the provincial level and then the national level when I was 13 and 14 and stuff like that. So, um, it wasn't necessarily like I, I loved the game of tennis or I loved competing because I don't really think that I did, you know, I'm not, I don't. You know, sometimes a um, couple coaches that I've worked with is like, Gabby, you gotta, you gotta smell blood," <laughs> um, and I'm just like, I, I struggle with that. I really do, and um, it's probably because I tend to overthink most things. So I get inside my head, you know, when I'm playing, and sometimes I forget. Oh yeah, there's an opponent there, and they might be, you know, feeling <laughs> the same things that you are. So you gotta kind of step on the gas here. And, uh, you know, put the pressure on right now. Uh, but, when, you know, when I was younger, I probably did something similar and probably was thinking more than actually just playing. <laughs> but um, 
I, I would say I started to, to maybe love the sport more actually in my 20s uh, when I was able to, you know, play the bigger tournaments and be treated really well as like a professional athlete, you know, because when you play the big tournaments, you have several days of your hotel that's covered. You're obviously making some more money if you're doing well and you get to travel to nice places. So there's a different sort of perspective on it. But for a long time, it was like, you have to, not you have to make it, but just like you have potential. So don't waste your potential. And, you know, this is your ticket to a better life. Um, and I, I'm sure tons of athletes feel that at a young age, and some of them stop because the pressure is too high. But I didn't want to stop. I wanted to see how far I could take it. Well, uh, that that's terrific to see you were able to sort of manage uh, those internal and external pressures and, and and carve out the career that you have to this point. It has been incredible to see. Uh, looking back at your career, you know, you had some, some solid early success in singles on the WTA. Then you made that transition to doubles. Uh, what do you think, I guess, brought brought on that change that you felt like doubles was, was the route to go? And, and do you still have interest in the singles side? Oh, I definitely still have interest in the single side. It's just been put on the back burner, you know, for the time being. Um, but I never lost my interest in singles. Um, you know, I, I, I made it to, like, Grand Slam qualies. So I played um, slam qualies of, of every slam. Um, but I never really did that well. I might have won a round. Uh, and I never, I never was higher than about 160 or 70 in singles. And, and mainly I, I would say that's just because, uh, couldn't afford a full-time coach. So I was kind of just cruising on my own with the help of, you know, a few coaches here and there when I could afford them with the help of my dad, but it wasn't anything really super, super professional or, where I had, you know, constant guidance and really a plan of how to go from point A to point B and and stuff like that. I knew some coaches that I thought could help me, but of course, that really wasn't in the budget. <laughs> um, so I was kind of just trying to survive on my own for a little while. And um, unfortunately, even though I was a top five junior um, and I had some ideas of, of how to... Um, you know, give myself the best chance to succeed as a tennis pro. Unfortunately, our our tennis federation didn't agree with me, and I just kind of had to go it alone for a while without any support um, from anyone, except except my parents, of course. And so eventually, it came to a point where financially, it was like either you quit tennis, or you try to figure out a way to stay in it. And for me, the way to stay in it was to play doubles because when I was playing ITFs and if I wasn't doing too well in singles, I was going deeper into draws and doubles and winning a lot more. And so I kind of just was like, well, obviously I'm not able to take my singles game to the next level, but maybe I can make the most of the double skill set that I have. And so then that became my goal is to then play you know, with the best possible partner I could find, which I was very, very lucky to do, you know, won a couple more ITS and then made it to the WTA level, had a couple more good results, um, quote unquote, put my name on the map a little bit. I just think as you're going up the rankings, then um, people gain a little bit more respect for you and then you can play with girls who are even better. And yeah, so I, I think I was just, 
lucky in a way to play with great partners, but at the same time, I put a lot of work in to, to make my doubles game strong. Um, and yeah, and I'm happy that I did do that because now I am where I, 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 you know, I've, I've made it to seven in the world. And like you said, I've won two mixed doubles grand slams. I've played in the Olympics, which was always my dream. So I'm definitely happy that I made that decision. But when it was time to make that decision in my early twenties, it was, it was a very tough one for sure. It's really nice to hear you speaking so positively about that. And obviously with what you've achieved on the doubles course, uh, most players would be more than happy to have a career like yours. So, uh, you know, good for you and, and making the most out of what would have been a tough situation when you were younger. Um, when we spoke a year ago for an article I was writing for Ontario Tennis Magazine, you mentioned that perhaps after the Olympics this year, you might want to try and focus a bit more on your singles game. Now, I don't hold anyone to what they said a year ago, so I'm just curious do you feel anything sort of similar at, at this point in time? I mean, I would like to fit it in, uh, but with the way that the tour has gone right now, not being able to play, um, I'm really not sure what I would do. I, I would still like to, to play a few more singles tournaments, but I think my schedule will be really full when we do get going again. So at this point, I, I don't really have a concrete answer. It's just that I hope I, I can play more singles for sure. And uh, assuming uh, you do have the opportunity uh, again to, to play at the Olympics uh, this year in Japan, and uh, for what we know at this time, they do intend to hold the Olympics this year. Uh, any chance of, of a mixed doubles partnership? Uh, we, we hear the name Vashik Pospisil floating around, uh, a, a thought that you would be a great partner alongside Vashik, say, in mixed. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, the only thing is that for mixed doubles, there are just 16 teams that are accepted, and the cutoffs are very, very high, so it's just going to be based on ranking. Um, so it'll be who I can get in with and who wants to play. Uh, I think the cutoff in 2016 was, I don't think it was any lower than 40. Maybe it was even 35. So you can see that, you know, all the best players in the world are playing and they're very highly ranked. So if I'm, let's say, seven, then I have to play with somebody who's, you know, 28 if the cutoff is, is 35 to be the last team in, you know, for example. So it's really not totally up to me. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it's really tough to get into mixed doubles at the Olympics, but that would be incredible if I could do it, and, and I hope that I can. How concerned are you at this point that the Olympics may or may not be happening, depending on what sort of happens next with uh, coronavirus? We know how much you love representing Canada, whether it be Fed Cup or how you've spoken so passionately about your previous Olympics experience. Um, how, how badly, you know, and how high on your list of things in 2020, uh, you know, do we place the Olympics? Well, for me, it's, it's always number one. Um, uh, I don't know the situation I've heard, like you said, I've heard that it's all moving forward. So we'll just have to monitor it and see, obviously it being in July, it's hard to make a decision right now because it seems like what's going on in the world with this virus, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I don't know for how much longer it's going to get worse before it gets better. And, and so only time will tell, but yeah, I mean, I do love representing Canada and I think all of us, as athletes, when we're representing our country, you know, we're not, we're not representing the government. We're not representing any bureaucratic stuff that happens. We're, we're playing for Canada because we're playing for that little kid that's watching us on the screen 
and saying to themselves, I want to be that girl, I want to be that boy, and I want to make it to the Olympics so I can compete alongside the best athletes in the world who have made countless sacrifices throughout their life, but they've achieved that, and nobody can take it away from them. So, you know, when, when I say I'm representing Canada, that's really who I'm representing. Well, Gabby, you are uh, one of those role models for us in this country. Uh, terrific tennis athlete. And, and thanks so much uh, for joining us this week on the program. We hope you uh, stay safe and sanitized uh, going forward. <laughs> thanks, you too. Yeah, be safe. There you have it, Canadian doubles player Gabby Dabrowski, currently ranked seventh in the world in the doubles field on the WTA. And thanks uh, so much to her for joining us and uh, clearly a proud Canadian. And I, I'm so hopeful that we do get an Olympic year, fingers crossed. And uh, I, I hadn't really considered the factor of how much rankings actually matter in terms of making your mixed doubles partnership. For the mixed doubles, for sure. I think for women's doubles, Gabby should be in a better spot this year if it does indeed happen. Uh, I mean, I guess it depends on the health of others, but, you know, uh, a partnership between her and Bianca Andreescu, look out. Whereas four years no ago, kidding. Gabby barely got in four years ago because her own ranking wasn't quite high enough yet. And she had to rely on Jeannie Bouchard's singles ranking to get her in, actually, and for Jeannie to commit to wanting to play the doubles. So, you know, my heart went out to, to Gabby four years ago. And now it's kind of uh, going out to her again, hoping that the Olympics happen. I, I almost want the Olympics to happen more for Gabby Dabrowski than anyone else, just because of <laughs> how passionate she is. And, and when she says that they're playing for that little kid at home watching, she's not just saying that. That's not just like a cliche. That's genuinely why Gabby plays and represents her country. Um, she's just so genuine in that sense and has so much passion for playing and wanting to get kids hooked on on the sport. It's not about, you know, the priority isn't the the payday, the priority isn't the uh, sponsorships or the, the the image or anything like that. Gabby Dabrowski really is one of the, the nicest ones out there, and so we're, we're pulling for her all the time on this podcast, and she's certainly been the anchor, as we've said before, or the rock of Canadian tennis over the last few years with her strong play in, in the doubles world. Yeah, you can always rely on, on a deep Grand Slam result in doubles from Gabby Dabrowski when she is competing. And, and so great to hear how she was kind of able to reform her career when uh, she didn't have the support she needed in singles. She couldn't get over that next hump. And financially, it was a struggle. And uh, we know that is a struggle for a number of players. But she had the skill set to transition to a terrific doubles career. And uh, I'm sure we're going to see her on the tour for years to come. Uh, some positive news as we continue uh, on Matchpoint Canada and that is related to our promotion with Yonex Canada, which we've had going now for a couple of weeks. The Yonex E-Zone Tennis Racket Series delivers unmatched power and comfort for beginners to the world's best athletes like Naomi Osaka and Nick Kyrgios. And with the largest sweet spot in the series history, the arrow-shaped frame produces a plush, more comfortable feel at impact, even on your off-centered shots. Now, one lucky Matchpoint Canada listener does have the chance to win this E-Zone racket of their choice. You have to enter into the contest. All that needs to be done to enter, you come onto Instagram, follow us at Matchpoint Canada, follow at Yonex Canada, and post either a picture, video, or story using the hashtag Hashtag Matchpoint Canada Yonex, and then we will randomly select a winner. We still have two weeks left of this promotion, so you still have a chance to, to get yourself a tennis racket. And the cool thing about this promotion, I think, is the fact that the winner gets to choose their version of the E Zone racket. Yeah. So to their tailored to their um, you know, their 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 likes. And um 
Gosh, you can tell you work in radio, eh, Ben, the way you do that. That was just, I love the delivery. <laughs> I appreciate that. You're a pro. Ben Lewis is a pro, folks, and we're lucky to listen to him. Oh, well, that's uh, that's <laughs> that's very, very kind of you. Um, so, yeah, please follow us on Instagram to, to get in on this uh, terrific promotion, and uh, we'll continue pumping it out on Instagram and on Twitter. And now on the line, Nina Pantic from Tennis.com's podcast joins us. Uh, she's, of course, a member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network and also the managing editor of Tennis.com. Nina, thanks so much uh, for joining us this week. Thank you so much for having me. Nina, I've got to start off and just mention how uh, much I love your header photo on Twitter where you're interviewing Roger Federer. Oh, yeah, that's the peak of my career in life. <laughs> that smile. I mean, you can't fake that smile. And I'd be having the same one if I was, you know, up close interviewing him or, or Djokovic or Nadal or any of those top uh, guys or, or female players. Uh, the best I could do for a, a photo with Roger was kind of photobombing in the background of a French press conference a few years ago. But yours is definitely uh, the real thing. Yeah, it definitely looks legit. I have no intention of changing it at this point. It's about to be five years old and uh, not changing it. Yeah, yeah, it'd be tough to top. Um, I'm, I'm going to start with, uh, obviously, how are, you, uh, how are you handling the isolation so far as, as things are uh, day by day seemingly getting a little bit more uh, sort of serious uh, with this coronavirus going on? It's definitely been in a very rapid ascension into complete isolation from a couple of days ago. Even 24 hours ago, things kind of still seemed okay. And now I'm in New York, so things are getting very dramatic very quickly. But it's kind of an efficient way to go about it. So, yeah, we're just going to... To chill inside for about two weeks, I think. <laughs> and uh, I, I just want to ask uh, from your perspective because I, I know uh, where I was. I guess when Indian Wells was canceled, and you just think about Indian Wells getting canceled, and that that feels like year old news, um, given all that's transpired over the past uh, six seven days. Uh, had you had intentions to be covering that tournament on site? Uh, where were you when that transpired? And then uh, suddenly we have no ATP, no WTA for weeks at a time. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's crazy how that feels like it was years ago. That was only eight days or so ago. And it feels like it was, I mean, centuries ago, because so much has happened since then. We had a crew, I mean, a huge crew going down there from the LA office. People were on site a few days before. And lucky for us, because Tennis Channel has such a big presence in Indian Wells, we had this big studio, um, like a production tent set up. So we actually had players coming through regardless, got a bunch of content with them anyway. So in, in a way, it wasn't a total loss and we have something to carry us through, but it was definitely a shock. And now what a great call by them though. in, in hindsight, mm -hmm. how are you uh, spending these days without any live tennis to, to watch? I did see a tweet with a stack of tennis books that you were planning on reading through. Uh, is that one of the main things that you're diving into right now? Well, unfortunately, or fortunately, we still have full-time jobs in tennis, so we have to find a way to create content regardless. And it, we're kind of treating it, at least right now, until it gets longer, as kind of a second off-season. And in off-season, we always manage to figure out content. And luckily for me, I manage Baseline.Tennis.com, which is really heavily based on social media. And players are still, I mean, as we are, a little bit bored. So posting is going to be pretty, I think, I think pretty often. Um, the books... That's actually a very small percentage of the books I've read. There's a few I still haven't read in that stack. Currently working on The Prose by Peter Underwood. Um, and then I have a Kindle, so I got tons more. I've gotten through a ton of books. My favorite books, I mean, tennis books is just there's so many. Uh, it's something to do, but also another way for us to create content, book reviews, movie reviews, 
anything. Anything goes. Yeah, we got to get a little bit uh, creative. It's um, it's it's funny you mentioned sort of like a second off season. This off season actually might be longer, unfortunately, than the real off season that tennis gets. And as fellow podcasters, um, have you and Irina come up with some uh, new and, and creative things to talk about as we go further into this break without any live tennis to watch? Lucky for us, at least in our show, it has never really been about breaking news um, or super heavy and reliant on results because of how long our production kind of takes. So, um, and also lucky for us, we recorded a huge collection of shows kind of towards the end of 2019 that we're still slowly rolling out. Thanks to Irina Falcone and her connections and stuff. And, um, and thanks to the USTA for letting us go down there and record a bunch of shows. So we actually, you know, we have, we have guests, we have people that talk about their story in tennis and their life and, you know, how the game has impacted them, be they, if they're players or coaches or tournament organizers or whatever they are. Um, I don't think the show, if anything, the show should be fine because we're going to continue to reach out to people and even people like who wrote tennis books. I mean, I'm reaching out to people that are authors that want to write it or talk about their book. I mean, there is still enough going on in terms of like the personalities we have not spoken to. I'm sure you're the same. And there's a lot of players that have a lot of time on their hands and are willing to talk about their own lives, maybe more than the future, which is now kind of a bit unknown. And the show is always a fantastic listen. Uh, just just going back, and, and Irina Falcone, you mentioned your, your co-host. How did you two initially come together to, to start creating this podcast? And, and what do you think makes your dynamic uh, work well together? Well, I'll let you in on a little history there. Irina and I used to play juniors together when we were about 14 years old wow. in Florida. Yeah. And then we went on the tour together as in like the ITF tour in like Mexico and around the U.S. together as like maybe 16, 17 year olds. So we've been pretty much best friends for 15 years. And that was a very easy person for me to ask if she was interested. And at that point, it was around summer 2018. I think she was looking ahead a little bit to what she wants to do after playing. Uh, so the timing was right. And I mean, I think it's been it's been pretty great to have a player that's for a minute there, she was off the tour, but now she's back. So it was pretty great to have someone that people are familiar with and they're happy to talk to because they trust her and they know her. So there's definitely been a bit of an edge there. Um, but yeah, for us to work together was, I mean, working with your friends, there's pros and cons to that, but it's definitely somebody that I, I trust wholeheartedly and someone that I enjoy working with. So it's the opposite of Ben and I. You guys were <laughs> friends and then became podcasters together. We became podcasters and Correct. then the friendship blossomed, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Or at least that's how we're putting it. Yeah, pros and cons to both. But yeah, Irina and I go way back. So tell us about um, your transition from playing competitive tennis to this side of things. At what point did that happen? And was this always something, you know, the media side that you wanted to get into to stay connected with the sport? I mean, my passion, as as the tweet has said, is is, uh, is reading and writing and um, more interested in, in creating content. Always have been. But when I was playing uh, I, just think I tried to go pro as like a 16, 17 year old and then ended up going the college route. And for me, I never really at that point wanted to go pro after college. I was very much done with competitive tennis and it was a very quick transition. I went to the University of Missouri for grad school. I was doing some projects here and there and a couple of them required you to interview editors and writers and stuff. And Tennis Magazine was something I've been reading since I was five years old it was the magazine that my family was obsessed with my whole life. And luckily they have a contact email in their masthead. So 
it was one of those like things that just kind of fell together very, very quickly when I was like, I think I was 23 at the time in grad school. And I've never really looked back. It's It's been a very natural fit. And writing about tennis has been so, I don't know, like it's it's both rewarding and, and difficult because you kind of relate to it differently as a former player, someone who, I mean, in a way didn't quite achieve the dreams that I wanted to, but being able to connect with players is something that I don't take for granted. And now I know uh, today we, we don't have live tennis, obviously, both both tours under under suspensions uh, given the coronavirus outbreak. But uh, we're, we're always interested in, I guess, the evolving storylines from the season as we saw it. And on the men's side, I guess the evolving story before we left off was Novak Djokovic uh, on this unbelievable quest in 2020, hadn't lost a match. Uh, and was heading into Indian Wells looking looking to keep that streak going. Where do you think maybe we will pick up pick up from where we left off uh, in terms of an ATP season when we are back? Is is Djokovic going to be sort of the front line story, his winning streak? Are we going to be looking at uh, the dismantling of the big three? What storylines do you think you're going to have your eye on when when we do return? You definitely don't mess with Novak Djokovic. I think he is going to be coming back red hot. I don't I don't doubt that for a second. But it, it's also interesting that Federer is out right now with an injury. And when he comes back, it could be perfect timing for him. I mean, you, you just don't know how things are going to shape up. I think the storylines will be, will be so unusual because it's going to be such a long break. I don't think it's going to be just four to six weeks. I think it's going to be longer. And it's going to be so strange. Everyone just starting back up again with, with as if nothing had happened. And, and I think at least the good news is going to be equal for everyone. There's no, you know, some players are injured right now, but by the time this all happens and, and tours come back, I think they're all going to be on equal footing, which is, which is just bizarre. But I think Novak will be more than prepared and continue. Uh, will he be undefeated all of 2020? It depends on how many tournaments we get in. We'll definitely have a lot more healthy players. You'd, you'd think that people are using this time to get back in uh, in playing shape for, for those who did have some injuries. And one of them, of course, that we like to talk about up here in Canada is on the cover of your most uh, recent tennis magazine, Bianca Andreescu. And I'm just curious uh, in terms of her uh, finding that spot on the uh, the recent cover. Were you a part of that dialogue or or what thought process maybe went into uh, to choosing her for the most recent issue? I'm one of the many people that work on Tennis Magazine, one of the editors. I do a lot of the inside pages. The cover ends up kind of falling in the hands of uh, Ken Solomon, a Tennis Channel CEO. But Bianca, I do want to say for her, she came to Tennis Channel's tent in Indian Wells last week, I think Monday or Tuesday, and she was just a delight. I've heard that she was unbelievably fun and uh, great spirits. She brought her dog, Coco. She was all in for the photo shoot, the videos, the interviews, the one-on-ones. She kind of did it all, and that's it goes to say something about her character that in a time where, you know, things are uncertain and yeah, she has a lot of time on her hands because she wasn't even playing. She was there for media obligations, but still it gives credit to her for, for coming in and having energy and being fun and into stuff with us. It's always fun to have someone that really enjoys tennis channel and enjoys being part of the media. But for her, I mean, it's an interesting time because of that knee injury, but if anything gives her, gives her even more, I guess, freedom to take the time she needs. Well, it's nice to hear what you have to say about Bianca in terms of her off-court uh, presence because we've definitely come to appreciate that uh, from what we've seen of her over the years and certainly the past year where things have exploded for her. Um, so good choice on that cover shot. And uh, <laughs> Nina, we uh, wish you and Irina all the best with your podcast over this difficult and, and challenging time. And, of course, good health to uh, everyone in your families and, and inner circles. And uh, we just want to thank you for uh, for taking the time with us tonight. Thank you so much, and good luck, guys, with the show. We, uh, we also are listening to your, your episodes as well.
And there she goes, Nina Pantic of the Tennis.com podcast, also the managing editor of Tennis.com and Baseline Tennis as well. And uh, good for them that they backloaded a bunch of content in 2019 already. So they are absolutely good to go. I, I have no no worries for them whatsoever. As she was saying that, I was like kicking my own butt thinking, why haven't we done that? <laughs> so Well, we, we had so many interviews at Rogers Cup last year true. Uh, in terms of different players. But I, I think we may have used everything. Well, we were doing a daily during Rogers Cup too. We so that was kind of, you know, like we had no choice but to use a lot of them. Yeah. But next year, I mean, sorry, this year, at Rod- hopefully it's not next year this year at rogers cup <laughs> yes we will have to just compile and compile and stash them away for uh you know a rainy day like this i guess yeah no no kidding you are listening to match point canada now it seems like a trivial thing to bring up give, given what's going on I, I guess in the real world but we are operating in the sports world this is a tennis podcast and I, i've heard the discussion online about about rankings in tennis what is going to happen to the ranking points for all these players on the on the ATP side and the WTA side cuz points are going to come off as weeks go by and players are missing tournaments and the idea was kind of tossed out could we have a rankings freeze do you think that is something that's possible for the tours to implement. Yeah, I haven't heard the tours themselves say anything definitive about it, so it's all just speculation, which is fun anyways. But when Indian Wells was first getting canceled, I I tweeted something out about how, well, this will be good for Bianca because, you know, how could they have everybody lose lose their points? And and is this fair to people that now don't have the chance to even give it a go to defend their points who are healthy? Bianca obviously wasn't going to be healthy, but for most players who would have been, but then when you think about it, the rational comeback to that is, well, it's a 52-week rotating ranking system. How else could they do it without changing the entire, you know, and that wouldn't be fair either, I suppose, in in some ways. I don't know what the perfect solution is, but John Isner tweeted something out earlier tonight, just before we recorded, suggesting, hey, should there be a freeze? And I, I, I'm not sure how they would go about actually implementing that yeah uh you you don't know if it's feasible you also don't really know what the tour plans are when we make a return are they going to try and make up these events elsewhere and completely restructure a calendar Uh, indian wells in november or something yeah now uh tom tebbit of course the previous week says that that's almost impossible uh but you know, it, it could be feasible if we're running out of time. They want to play a French Open. They could push it back. You want to get Wimbledon played, you could push it back. Uh, and then we're just scrapping other events. But in, in terms of Canadians, uh, and people have asked the question, what what happens to a Denis Shapovalov and a Felix Ojealiasim ranking? And uh, look, Denis, for example... Uh, 450 points are are going to be coming off the books just with Indian Wells and Miami, and that will drop him outside of the top 20. Felix, for example, uh, doing the math, 423 ranking points are coming off just from that Sunshine Double because uh, he had a run to the semifinals, so he would drop outside the top 25. Milos Raonic, uh, he was in the semis of Indian Wells last year, so he's going to get hit hard. He's already falling to number 47 uh, just next week. And uh, just looking back around his career, he's played so well at, at Indian Wells. He had that final in 2016, other consistent deep runs to semifinals. It's been kind of a hunting ground for him. So that's a major loss for him. And what a reminder this is about how darn good the Canadians were playing during this time of the year in 2019. Right. Things were clicking for, yeah, those three male players you just mentioned. Bianca clearly was having the the month of her life at that point in time. Mm -hmm. 
I'll take it, I guess, because when you look at them, uh, or at least three of the four are all still young enough that they've got many, many years ahead of them. Milos does still, too, have, have plenty of time if his body would cooperate. Uh, so I guess what we're looking at here is this is the new norm for Canadian tennis is we have good players. They're going to have results, not always consistent results, but they're going to have big results at certain points in the year. And this is a good thing. And yes, those points are going to come off. Sometimes they'll be able to defend. Sometimes they won't. It's out of their hands right now. The only other positive is everybody's points are coming off from that tournament. So it's not just like Dennis or Felix is going in and bowing out in the first round. Yeah. And when they get back to it, uh, you just hope and expect now. I think there is an expectation in uh, in the circles of, of Canadian tennis fans and us in the media that they're going to have these performances again and again, if not getting better. Yeah, they, they've, they've proven it for a sustained period of time. We know they can produce those results. And I'll remind people with Milos Raonic, he missed the entire clay, clay season in 2019. So uh, there were a lot of opportunities missed to, to gain ranking points. And uh, for some players right now, the time might be welcome uh, to, to get healthy. Circumstances not welcome at all, uh, but getting, getting their bodies right again uh, yeah. over this period of time where we don't have any live professional tennis. In terms of looking at the positives, you have to look at positives. That's yes. what people do in times like this, right? Exactly. So if you're looking at the glass half full, which is obviously harder day in and day out with what's going on, but yeah, getting healthy and getting ready and spending time with family and friends and I'm going to try and enjoy the next three weeks plus, depending on how long the schools are here with, with my little kiddos and just remembering that, hey, one day they're going to be grown up. They're not going to want to spend any time with me, so I might as well <laughs> take advantage while I can. Yeah, uh, and, uh, you know, we posed the question on Twitter as, as we wrap up now. Uh, ideas moving forward for this podcast, what people wanted to hear. Um, someone brought forth the idea of reimagining the te- tennis calendar. I love that idea. Um, I had the idea maybe sort of looking more in depth at the, at the life of a touring professional. What is it like traveling week to week through a 52-week uh, calendar year? Yeah, there's so many different ideas. I mean, new guests, old guests, yeah. um, joint podcasts, collaborations, like having Nina on tonight from the Tennis.com podcast. And we're always happy to reciprocate as well. So, hey, fellow podcasters, let's help each other out, bounce ideas off each other, and support one another during this time and and enjoy each other's uh, creations as we often do. Yeah, certainly. Uh, Well, thank you so much for listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will be here uh, for the foreseeable future. We'll talk to you next time.